Hello, and welcome to Stonebridge Community Church's online service. I am Pastor John, one of the pastors here at Stonebridge. And this week, we are beginning our sermon series entitled Fulfilled, where we are looking at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. And we begin with Matthew 5, 33 through 37, looking at Jesus' statement, let your yes be yes and your no, no. So I'm grateful that you have checked in with us through our online worship service here. And I hope that this is a time where you can experience the Holy Spirit's presence and you can worship God as well. I do want to extend an invitation for you to come and join us at our in-person services as well. We have three services, Saturday night at 5.30, which is an indoor service, Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, which is an indoor service, and Sunday at 10.30, which, was, which is an outdoor service. Come and join us if you are ready, because church is meant to be done in community. But wherever you are, may God bless you, and let us worship the Lord God together. Until the veil was torn, the moment that hope was born, and guilt was pardoned once and for all, captivated, but no
sadness from wherever you've been. Come, brokenhearted, let rescue begin. Come, find your mercy, oh sinner, come near. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. No, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Lay down your burden, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. Come sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, and rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure.
I'm Pastor John, one of the pastors here at Stonebridge. It's nice to see you all this evening. We are beginning our sermon series entitled Fulfilled, where we're looking at Jesus' instructions in Matthew 5 through 7, what's titled The Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives these specific teachings related to how his disciples should behave and act and interact in the world and with the world. So we'll be beginning this with Matthew 5, 33 through 37. And I invite you to hear the word of God. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of God. Thanks be to our Lord. And please join me in prayer. Lord, this evening as we gather, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, every week we gather, we lift our voices up, and we come here so we can hear your word. So speak to us now. Help us to know how we can follow your teachings. Help us to know how we can hold your teaching appropriately in our lives. Help us to know how we can be your disciples in this world through the Sermon on the Mount. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wanted to begin with this scripture passage, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, for a specific reason. It's not the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, but the way that it's been received in the church over the centuries now raises a very interesting question in how we respond to the Sermon on the Mount. The question basically is, do people take the Bible literally? When people are looking at the Bible, do they take it literally? Now, there's a huge debate about taking the Bible literally. This is something Christians have argued over, have debated over for a very long time. Oftentimes, it comes down to what is the definition of literally in there. And what I would say is, yes, we take the Bible literally, but literal implies that you take the intent of the author as best as can be discerned into account. That you can't take something that was written as poetry and make it history. And you can't take a parable and make it an actual narrative or a song or something. You have to take the genre, you have to take the intent into account. But with this question, and specifically with the Sermon on the Mount, there's just something I've noticed over the years. The people who seem to argue the strongest for taking passages of the Bible literally they usually focus on the ones like the beginning of Genesis or Jonah. But then they get to the Sermon on the Mount, and it's like, oh, no, we don't need to take that one literally. And you can go back and you can look at the history of interpretation on the Sermon on the Mount. Most people commenting on this have taken Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and they've made certain carve-outs. They've taken this and said, 
we don't actually have to take this one literally. Jesus couldn't have meant what he actually said here. For 1,700 years, this is the way the Sermon on the Mount has been received. To the point where not only do a lot of Christians not take it literally, they don't even take it too seriously anymore. It gets discarded as important teachings for our lives. And instead of wrestling with Jesus' teachings, we just kind of go to easier stuff, simpler stuff, stuff that isn't as difficult for our lives. Now, I want to say my own personal take with the Sermon on the Mount is we should be taking it as literally as is possible for us. When you look at the plainest sense of these passages, of Jesus' teaching here, he's saying to his disciples, this is how you're supposed to live in the world. Now, I don't think Jesus is talking about salvation here. I don't think he's saying if you don't do this, you don't receive God's love or anything like that. I think Jesus is saying if you want to be my disciple in this world, if you want to live the life that is available to you, to its fullest, in abundance, then do these things. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. And when you look at the simplest sense of this text, Jesus doesn't give any carve-outs for it. But we have to also recognize in the midst of this, we aren't going to do this perfectly. We have to have grace for one another. We have to have patience with one another. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the idea of mercy is very important. In this gospel specifically, mercy wins at the end of the day. So there has to be grace there, but we can't just set Jesus' teaching aside and say it doesn't matter. Or we just kind of functionally in our lives ignore it. We should be wrestling with this passage. What's so interesting to me, and again, I said I wanted to begin with this passage for a specific reason, because when you look at how this passage has been received in the church, you see a shift and it serves as almost an example for the way people have responded to the Sermon on the Mount. Like I said, for 1,700 years, people have taken the Sermon on the Mount and done certain carve-outs. Like, we don't have to actually take it too seriously. But in the first 300 years of the church's history, the Sermon on the Mount was lifted up as a literal teaching to Jesus' disciples that Christians tried to actually live out. And one of the clearest examples of this was with the teaching here of do not swear at all. Do not swear oaths at all. Is Jesus' teaching here. For the first, well, real quick, let me just say something too, just to be very, very clear. Jesus, when he's saying do not swear here, he's not talking about vulgarity or profanity. There's other parts of the Bible that do talk about that. What he's talking about is oaths, making an oath. That's the type of promise that he's talking about. And he's saying, just don't ever do it. For the first 300 years in the church's history, Christians did that. Now, there's some exceptions here and there, but by and large, Christians went out of their way to not swear any oaths. That's what all the evidence we have points us to, that they wouldn't swear oaths. That might sound simple to you, but you have to think about a fact of all of our lives. What is the entity that most commonly asks each and every one of us to swear oaths? It's whatever government you're living under. And that was true for the early Christians as well. In a system of court, in a system of justice, you are asked to swear oaths. 
if you want to serve in an official capacity in a government, you're usually asked, whatever the type of government, you usually ask for some type of loyalty pledge or loyalty oath. So when Jesus is saying to his earliest followers, do not swear oaths, it makes their lives very difficult. And if we tried to apply that standard to our own lives today, I think it would make our own lives difficult. We're asked to swear oaths all the time as well. We're just so used to it that I don't know if we really reflect on it anymore. So here's what happens in the church's history. 300 years, Christians do what they can to not swear oaths. At times, it causes them to be persecuted. At times, it causes them to even lose their lives in certain moments. They don't hold any sort of real power in society. They're, outskir- they're, they're outcasts, they're marginalized, and they're okay with that. And then around 320, something happens. And it's almost like a, a, a switch is flipped. And you see a change in Christians. What happens is the Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire, he fights some battles, he ends up winning the battles, he becomes the emperor, and he makes Christianity an accepted, favored religion. That changes everything. Because now all of a sudden you have people who want to be Christians because Constantine favors the Christians. And there's power there. And all of a sudden Christian leaders, bishops, start saying, you know, maybe it is okay for us to swear some oaths. You also have other Christians who very understandably are pretty tired of being on the outskirts of society, of being marginalized, of being persecuted. So they start to swear oaths to the Roman Empire also. And the first real carve-out you get is that Christians are allowed to actually swear oaths if it's in the service of the government in which they're living. And that becomes standard. And then over time, over the hundreds of years since then, it gets broadened and broadened, and there's more places in our lives in which we can swear oaths. Now, this is one of those sermons, and I've promised you all that I'm going to do this from time to time, probably more often than not, where I don't have simple answers to this. I'm not going to go to you and say, don't ever serve in jury duty again. I, I'm just, I don't know if I could say that. What I am going to say, though, is that maybe part of the point for us with this passage is that we start rustling with the idea of swearing oaths a little more. That instead of just doing it without thinking about it, we realize that every time you're asked to swear an oath, you're asked to divide your loyalty. And you have to decide what is going to come first. Your loyalty to God or your loyalty to the entity to which you swore the oath. And those two might be in conflict more than we realize. I think that this teaching that Jesus gives us here of do not swear oaths at all. We're not going to be able to do this perfectly, but in those moments where we do violate Jesus' teaching, we should wrestle with it. It shouldn't be something that we just do blindly, that we don't think about. And in those moments, maybe we can deepen our understanding of our loyalty to God and think through some important questions about where our loyalty actually does lie. It should be a moment for self-reflection, I think, for each and every one of us. But Jesus does continue in this teaching. He doesn't just end with don't swear oaths at all. He ends with that pretty famous line. It says in here, let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Another way of phrasing that is let your yes be yes and your no, no. 
And I think what Jesus is getting at is an incredibly important truth for his disciples. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Jesus is calling his disciples to not only question their loyalties, to not only think through that, but he's asking us today in our world, because we are followers of Jesus, disciples of his, he is asking us to be reliable in the words we use, to have our words match up with reality. That's what truthfulness is. And Jesus is calling his disciples to be truthful. Interesting, I think this is what Jesus is really focused on in this passage with all of his disciples. He wants our words to match reality. He wants us to be people where we don't have to be asked regularly to take oaths. Where we're so known for our honesty that nobody's even going to do that. I think back to when I was growing up, my brother, my sister, and I, we always asked each other to take oaths because we were all little liars. I was probably the worst liar out of the group, honestly. So my brother and my sister always asked me, do you swear on our mom's head? Do you swear on your dad's head? Do you swear on your cat? I love my cats. Because we weren't reliable. We were kids. But not one of us ever asked my grandma, we called her Grammy, to swear an oath. We knew she was telling us the truth. She was simply somebody who in our lives had so consistently loved us, cared for us, and told the truth that we never even questioned it. And I think that's what Jesus is really pushing his disciples towards here also. It's in those moments when you are asked to swear an oath, to not do it blindly, to think about the loyalties with God, but also to be somebody where you're rarely asked to swear an oath because you are honest and you are reliable and you are full of truth and your words match reality. And I say this with a level of grief. Sadly, I don't think Christians and the church right now, are known for being reliable and for having our words match reality. And I think it's the fault, really, of Christian leaders like myself. I think over the last few decades, we've had so many Christian leaders who have taken an easy path, who have seen that there is power in the church in our country, who have seen that by being a famous pastor, you can have a level of power and influence. And we've had so many scandals that are so public from Christian leaders. That right now people look at the church and they say, their words don't match reality. But I think also we've had other leaders who meant well, but who took an easy path. Instead of really pushing people into Scripture, pushing people into the words of Jesus, they replaced the gospel with a message that's more political than anything else. So that so many Christians right now think that their faith just lines up perfectly with their politics. And they don't really second-guess it or question it. And they have all sorts of information that comes their way, that comes our way, that comes from somebody that you trust, somebody that agrees with you already. And you share it. The thing is specifically about the culture online with social media with the news sources that we go to, with the news that we share with other people. Christians, frankly, we aren't skeptical enough. We end up passing along information that is just not true, that is not accurate, that is misleading, that is more rooted in a political agenda than it is in actually having our words match reality. 
And in every single one of those moments, when we share something that isn't actually true, through social media, through whatever, through an email, when we share something that isn't true, but it agrees with what we already think, in those moments, our yes becomes no and our no becomes yes, and we're not living into Jesus' teaching. I think it's a problem here. I think at a deeper root, one of the problems with this is that we as Christians have completely forgotten the idea of total depravity. Now, that's not the most chipper of phrases there, total depravity, and I recognize that. It sounds like a 90s Christian metal band that Lee Crabby would be leading or something. Rock and roll, right? Is this right? Yeah. But the doctrine of total depravity, I think it's critical and I think we've lost it. Let me explain this, what what I'm talking about here. Total depravity is this belief that every single human being has been tainted by sin. Every single one of us wrestles with sin. None of us is free of sin. And it goes deeper into saying that sin affects the way we view the world and the way we process what truth is. That our own perceptions of truth have been tainted by sin also. And when we buy into the doctrine of total depravity, I know there's a few Calvinists out there who are like, amen to this. But when we buy into this doctrine, this teaching, it should cause us to be incredibly humble when we're making any sort of truth claim. And it should cause us as Christians, I think, to when we're getting political information fed to us, when we're getting religious information that seems like it's a little aggressive, we should pause And remember that the person that came from, even if you've trusted them for decades, is not free of sin. You've got to pause and remember, your political party is not free of sin. No matter how much it throws the name Christian in front of something, that doesn't make it free of sin. No matter what kind of biblical language is pulled out and used, that doesn't mean it's free from sin. Total depravity should help us to have humility, to recognize That no matter how hard we try, we are also part of the problem. As human beings, we carry sin with us. Now that might sound depressing, but I think it should actually free us. Because here's the basic truth here. In Jesus' teaching, when he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, he says, do not swear by anything at all. I think Jesus is clarifying some things for us. And when you look at Jesus' call in our lives in general, We aren't called to fix this world. We aren't called to solve every single problem. We aren't called to make this world perfect. We're called to bear witness to the God who does that. So let your yes be yes and your no, no. We do that so in those moments where we are called to bear witness to God, people will believe us. The more we share information that isn't accurate, the more we spread misinformation, the more we don't do basic research to look at the stuff we're telling people in the world through whatever medium, the harder it is for people to trust us when we want to tell them about the God that we worship. Truthfulness. Why is it so important? It's important because it's at the very core of what we are called to do in this life, which is witness to Jesus. And when we chip away at our own truthfulness, when we aren't careful with our words, when we just throw whatever out there, we make it harder for us to do that, to witness to our Lord. But there's another piece of it too. Why is truthfulness so important? 
It's because when we are talking about truth, we're not talking about a set of propositions or ideas or an agenda. When we're talking about truth, that the Bible talks about the truth, we're talking about a person. Jesus is truth. And when our words match reality, they can't help but be pointing to Jesus. If Jesus is the truth, then that means the truth is there for us to find in all sorts of different places. And I think every single moment that our words actually line up with what is going on, there's a level of understanding there that helps us understand Jesus better. Truth in Christian faith is a person. It's not just a series of words. Our words point to that truth. That's one of the reasons why truthfulness is so important. So Jesus says, do not swear at all. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Jesus tells us, in those moments when someone does ask you to take an oath, wrestle with that. Don't just do it quickly. Think about it first. So that when you do give an answer, it's a truthful one. And then at the same time, work on being truthful people. Have your words match reality. Lift up others' words that match reality. And if you're not sure, don't share something until you actually look at the truth of it and research it and see if it's accurate. When we do that, we're free, I think, to live the life that Jesus calls us to. When we do that, we see God's grace in our own lives, and I think a burden is lifted off of us when we just recognize total depravity, that we're not called to be perfect in everything, but we're called to speak about the God who is perfect, the God who will fix everything, and that is where hope lies. So may we be careful with our words. May we be careful with the information we pass along. May we reflect on what our words mean. And in doing so, may we bear witness to the truth that is our Lord Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we are sinners. We fall short. And we know that in the Sermon on the Mount, though you make it clear that this is teaching that you expect your disciples to at least try to fulfill. We know that we will fall short of it, Lord. But help us to do that. Help us to try. Help us to strive. Help us to be mindful of our words, of what they mean. Help us to pause and think about whether or not our words match reality, whether or not the words of people we follow, people we have trusted, whether or not those words match reality also. Help us to have a healthy skepticism of every claim that comes our way. And help us as communities to lift truth up together. Lord, we know that you are the truth, ultimately. So Lord, speak to us now. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.